welcome everybody. We're here for another Meet the Author. So Gary, who do we have today? Well, I'm really pleased to welcome Clive Lloyd back to Meet the Author. Mm -hmm. So Clive, first of all, thank you for starting your Saturday morning really early for us. <laughs> That's okay. Clive was I'm on happy the to very, be here. Yeah. <laughs> Clive was on the very first show that was launched in October 2020 to discuss his next book, Next Genera Generation Safety Leadership from Compliance to Care. Now, in the email notice that Tamara put out, she did put a link in. So um, maybe we can add a link later into the chat panel if you want to see that previous YouTube um, video. But I've asked Clyde to come back to share what he's learned since then. So two years have passed and uh, there's a few things that happened in the past two years. Uh, so, but I'd like to see what, you know, Clive has picked up. Maybe consider this Clive as your next chapter or an addendum sure. to the book. As we, we haven't had maybe some people online who haven't read the book. How about if you give us a quick recap what's in the book? Yeah, okay. I'm just looking at the people and, and the people's names that I do recognize. So I'd say that there is quite a, a proportion of people here who have read the book. So, um, But for those that, that may not have, um, and I actually don't make this explicit in the book. So I'm just a, a little bit of um, background maybe on why I focused on the topics that I did. Um, so look, my background is um, I'm a psychologist, but with a clinical background rather than an organizational background. And how I got into safety, because I've got to tell you, I had no real intent or, or even knowledge of, of the whole safety field. But I was working a lot in grief counselling. And I, have, uh, I started a private practice specialising in that. Um, and I'd always been in senior leadership roles anyway. But as soon as I started my private practice in grief counselling, I started getting these phone calls from EAP providers, Employment Assistance Programs. And they actually wanted me to go to a mine site or an oil and gas plant or a construction site after a fatality. Now, this was my first exposure uh, to high hazard and to, to safety, really. And so, again, the first thing that shocked me was how frequently those events occurred. And week after week, I was sitting with families and, and team members and, and management groups after a death on site. And straight away, that changed my perspective on what I thought safety was all about. So, um, look, that's tough work, um, debriefing after a fatality. They're really, really challenging conversations. But the thing for me was, um, as I was doing that humanistic work, if you like, and I'm a humanist at heart, um, I did note that um, what the companies were also doing were investigations uh, and looking for violators and offenders and breaches of golden rules and things like that. And already I'm starting to think, shit, where, where else, excuse my language, it's late, it's early. Uh, where else in the organisation do we use that sort of language? Um, but apparently we use that in safety. And so for me, I was kind of desperate at this stage to do something other than just watch this fatality after fatality week after week. And I started wondering what these organisations, mostly high hazards, or, you know, oil and gas and so forth, what were they doing the other end? That is to prevent incidents from happening, or at least serious ones. And again, the more I looked, it was nothing that I recognised as a psychologist and as a leader myself that I knew was likely to create um, buy-in 
if you want to use that term, or intrinsic motivation, or even just you know this notion of we're in this together somehow. Um, they had all the what I harshly call sometimes safety platitudes, if you like, um, zero harm, your safety is our highest priority. But again, at the same time, they had safety officers, compliance officers, auditors. Um, they did investigations. I mean, who doesn't love being investigated by an officer, right? And so for me, I, I was kind of confused by all, by all this language. And look, um, the more I looked into this, again, where else do we use that in the organisation, right? Um, they were using behaviour-based safety. Now, to be a, and there's a whole chapter in the book on this. You, many of you would have read it. I'm not very flattering with BBS. Um, but that's because no self-respecting um, psychologist has used behaviourism since the 1960s um, because there's, there's better ways to do it. Uh, but anyway, all this stuff was happening and I thought, nah, this just cannot be right. So I started doing my own research, looking at well, what actually worked. The organisations that hurt less people, um, what is it was different culturally or performance-wise? And I'm still yet to find, and I've put this out there a few times and nobody's come back to me, but I'm still yet to find a more consistent predictor of safety culture and safety performance than trust. And I'll talk about some of this as we go through. So that's why I wrote about that. It's been 20 years since I've been doing this, 20 years worth of experience and a lot of research. So I thought when I, when I wrote this book, that was going to be what it was primarily about, trust that applied to safety and safety leadership. So look, the first part of the book, um, I, I guess, makes the case for change because I believe senior leaders, board members, if they're going to look at doing something different or even safety different to coin a term, um, they need a good case. You can't expect them to want to change if there's, you know, if they don't think there's a good reason to. So I tried to make the case for change again by quoting the research as well as experience. And again, just really focusing on what those sort of more mature cultures look like, if I could use that terminology. Once I did that, I did want to mention then a few things that I believe gets in the way of trust. Some common things that we do or use in safety, like some of those platitudes like zero harm, where there's literally no evidence that having a goal of zero does any good. There's literally none. There is fairly robust research to show that having a goal of zero is actually associated with increased harm. Uh, but it's not just the harm side, it's what a goal of zero does to trust. And so things like that, things like um, behaviour-based safety, which even with the best of intent, whose behaviours I'll be looking at? Well, you know, we're looking at the, the behaviour of the workforce. And so even with the best of intent, it still tends to come back to, that's why we have incidents because of workers. It tends to come back to blame. That creates us versus them. That gets rid of trust. So I just wanted to put up front some of the things that kind of get in the way. Part two of the book is more about, all right, that aside, what can we do as leaders to actually influence trust, to actually create the climate where trust can actually thrive? And um, yeah, most of the rest of the book is reasonably practical in that nature. And I get all the way to the final chapter before I even introduce the notion of safety differently. And uh, I've had a few people comment, and, and maybe we can talk about this later, Gary, uh, when we talk about learnings and where people have pushed back a little bit. And I have had a great deal of questions from mostly not from people in the field, 
but mostly from academics, um, commentators, um, theorists, uh, and so forth, uh, about why I didn't talk more about the new view, even though I tend to get lumped in with the new view a lot. And there are some very good reasons why I didn't focus on that, but we'll get to that shortly. So that's just a basic sort of outline of the chapters. If, if that's quick enough or too long, I don't know. No, I think that was great. Uh, it's really interesting to see how many of us have come to that same point about trust. And you've come at, I've come, I've come from that from an engineering point of view, realizing yep. I'm too much engineer and not enough of the human side. You've come that from a psychological side and I'm sure um, you folks out there, you've probably got to the same point too from whatever your background is. Well, I really like how you end each chapter with key points and reflection questions. So I'm curious, what have you learned from your client engagements and talking to others? Like, do you actually, do you have a client call you up because they've read your book? Or do they call you up for these other reasons you say? They said, oh, by the way, read my book. What's, what's been happening for you? <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of calls from people who have read the book. Um, and, and again, people in the field um, seem to get it. Um, my conversations where people are, you know, have things they'd like to challenge or talk about, generally speaking, don't come from organizations that we work with. They tend to come from commentators or um, uh, academics and so forth. Um, but I, I, I like the fact that you like the key points. Um, what we've had, for example, is some organizations, because of COVID, for example, uh, I mean, our business model is face-to-face -face training. I jump on planes and we go to Adelaide or Melbourne or Sydney and we, we run face-to-face -face programs. So when COVID hit, of course, um, that, was, that was it, that, it was all over. So we quickly turned to virtual workshops, which to me are never as good, but that's just me. I just like a live audience. But what happened, a lot of clients, while they were waiting, they bought copies of the book, say for their safety team, or even just for their leadership team. And what they got them to do was to go through the book individually, but actually respond to those hmm. um, reflection questions. And hmm. once they'd all done that, and it put a bit of accountability in it, because that they knew they were going to be asked, everybody read it. <laughs> and so what they did, they, they brought the teams together and they shared their perceptions, their responses to those um, reflection questions. And that alone, um, I, I believe, kicked off some really great discussions about what they felt they could do, what might be challenging. Um, but it, it also gave them a little bit of a roadmap uh, forward. So typically things they found they could manage quite well. Uh, with things like changes to language. So in, in part two of the book, I do focus a lot on language, like moving away from the, the, the language that I mentioned earlier, you know, um, investigations, offices, all that sort of policey, if you like, language to, uh, I guess, language that would more likely engender collaboration, trust and so forth. And so people found that quite straightforward. The other thing they jumped on a bit, um, for those of you that have read the book, you might remember those two self-fulfilling prophecies in the early chapters, the, the trust loop and the fear loop. And I guess because it's a graphic, people sort of grasp that quite, quite readily. And uh, they did have some questions. They said, we want to move, I guess, away from the fear loop towards the trust loop. Again, what does that look and sound like? And, you know, much of that is is really um, getting out there, that humble inquiry, if you like to quote Ed Shine, um, asking really good questions. And questions is, a, is an, another aspect that people really did grasp. Just moving away from that sort of 
nice economical brain movement going straight to blaming questions like whose fault who, who did that why did whose fault is it who's to blame to what are we going to learn from this uh what's just one thing we can do to move forward and just more of that humble inquiry um a lot of them actually embrace there's a there's a chapter on what we call the stockdale paradox because i thoroughly recommend for all leaders to structurally embed in the way you do work a time i don't know once a month once a quarter where you bring your team in and you ask them to share, um, if you like, the bad news, what I call in the book, brutal facts, because, hey, you can't fix a secret, right? Um, and so um, some of them struggled a little bit at first. They were bringing their crews in and saying, all right, so what's, you know, what are the brutal facts? And people would just sit there. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't actually share anything. And I explained that's kind of not unusual at first because historically, in many places, it hasn't been all that safe to share bad news. Um, and they really, leaders really need to emphasize we're doing this because we want to improve. You know, you're not going to have a target on your back. But once one or two brave souls put their hand up and say, okay, well, this is not the way we want it. And they see that nothing bad actually happens. Um, in, in fact, they start working that through with the other part of the paradox, which is looking at what we can control what we can influence and in making a plan. So things like that, people were able to put into motion. There some challenges arose, I think, in the facilitation of that. And I think part of my learning is I've been a facilitator, well, you know, psychologist with a clinical background, I've been facilitating for 30 years. And maybe I made an assumption in the book that facilitating things like that, um, maybe people would find more straightforward than many actually did. So that, that's some pretty good learning. Yeah, cool. I just Sorry, wanted to tap yeah, I just wanted to tap in here because um, as some of you may know about me and others may not, I actually come from a social work background. And so from social work, it's it's about advocacy and protecting the vulnerable people. And I I just kind of really scratch my head when I'm I'm hearing some some individuals in health and safety how they how they do work with the policing and compliance mentality, you know, and coming at like well it's the workers' error, and I, I guess I want to to know if you found any clarity around where that kind of mindset came from, Clyde, because when I did some digging about the history of occupational health and safety and how yeah. the occupational health and safety act actually came to yeah. be and i think it was back in the 17th um century i think in ontario and and you can correct me if i'm wrong it was around um eight the 1880s um something with the the factory act or something like that and it was really about you know trying to create some protections for workers mm. because they were not they were being exploited they were being mm. put into harm's way by companies and even if you if you go into our ontario legislation right we have an internal responsibility system in our occupational um, act in ontario and one of the rights of the worker is to participate and provide recommendations and have representation so can you help me understand what went astray <laughs> and people just kind of <laughs> Yeah, all right. So look, um, the history in terms of uh, health and safety, um, I'm certainly no expert on that. But what I do know is, and, and to quote the wonderful Rosa Carrillo, 
uh, a policy can't make it safe to speak up. Um, pretty much every client I work with has uh, that safe work guarantee, if you will. In other words, anybody can stop the job. Um, it's a policy. Um, anybody can intervene at any stage. That's also a policy. The policy does not make it safe to speak up. And if historically the last contractor, and it often is contractors, at least here in Australia, who did stop the job. Uh, in fact, I've got a, a case study here immediately I can, I can share with you. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we have time. Please tell me if it's, uh, please, if, you want, if you want me to shut up, just tell me, Gary, I've got a very thick skin. But um, we rolled out our program. This is a global mining company uh, in the Bond Basin here of Queensland. And we rolled out the Care Factor program seven years ago. So this is a long time ago. Went well, that you know, global mining company, they got good safety management systems, all that stuff. It went very well. Um, then a little while later, that mine was sold to a private equity company who I guess masquerade as a mining company. Um, and I, I hadn't seen them since, but their new general manager phoned me up last year and said, Clive, we've, we've, um, I've never met him, but he said, we've had this huge spike in incidents and some of them pretty severe. And what he didn't say at the time was including one fatality. And he said, we've done the root cause analyses and all that stuff people do. He said, we can't seem to find um, a common theme. And because you're familiar with the site, we're wondering if you could come and help us out. So look, I said, sure. What I will need though, is to be, you know, small groups of the workforce. And they must know that when I go there, um, it's whatever we say in that group is confidential for, for reasons I'm sure are obvious to, to everybody here. They agreed. My first group uh, was a group of people. What they did, they fired all of their salaried staff and they replaced their salaried staff. Well, they brought them all back actually, but as contractors. Now, in and of itself, that's not the, the, the real issue. Plenty of places actually do that these days. But anyway, so I've got a bunch of guys in front of me now who remembered me from seven years ago. And they said, Clive, you would remember back then. In fact, we talked about it a lot, that if we saw one of our mates, you know, around a dangerous area, or um, if there was just, just a, a piece of kit that was not as it should be, we all knew we could stop the job. We could intervene. And he said, we, we all did that. And then he added, I've got to tell you, man, there's no way I'd be doing that right now. Mm. And just quietly, my heart breaks because I know what happens after that. Um, so group after group gave me similar themes. And look, I, I put them to the test. I said, is this just a story we're telling ourselves that's blown out of control? Or do you actually have some, you know, some evidence for this? And I said, right, you want evidence. A couple of weeks ago, one of our contractors stopped the job for a legitimate safety issue. And he said the following Monday morning, not just that one guy, but the whole contracting company he worked for, gone, offside. Now you do that once, huh? Yeah. They've got a policy, they've got a stop work policy. Um, their values are up everywhere, you know? Um, number one value of course is safety. A policy doesn't make it safe to speak up. There's just no trust there. Nobody's going to speak up. You've got low trust. Or where you've got low trust, you've got high fear. Um, and nobody's going to speak up. And hey, you know, you, you can't fix a secret. So I don't know where it originated, but it's still alarmingly common that we say on the one hand, our values are safety first. Our safety is our highest priority. Bullshit. Um, but then we fire people who speak up. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I've seen that in play in retail also, where somebody has brought up something and the it's like vultures descending on the person about why would they speak up and and they're torn apart. They're not safe. Yeah, this is this is my view of what's happening. And it maybe helped answer your question tomorrow is where did this all start from? I know in British Columbia, it really started with the Workers' Compensation Act, which came around 1917, 18, because as you correctly said, we were treating humans like machines. You know, if they got hurt, that's no problem. You just throw them out and put another human in there and you keep working. So it was all about working as a machine bureaucracy. So that legislation was put in place, but then that creates this, this another entity called the safety regulator. And when I look at your title, Clive, and I see compliance to care, to me, compliance starts with that safety regulator. And who knows, maybe this is a whole new book for you, Clive, or another chapter <laughs> about safety regulation and how it is, how it has evolved over time. Because yeah. as you say, um, <clears throat> one of the concerns we've got is how zero harm and BBS, they're often sanctioned by global companies. Totally. And these global companies are responding to the regulations in the country that they are registered with. And that could vary yeah. all over the place. So, you know, in some respects, we blame the managers. Hate to do that. Yeah. But in some cases, these poor managers are saying, well, I have to do it this way. And you're doing yeah, it yeah. this way. Why are we so confused? Yeah. To, um, it's a great point, Gary. And to use a, a Todd Conklinism here, uh, we can blame or we can learn, right? And I extend that to leaders. I'm not necessarily in the business of blaming leaders. That's no better than blaming the teams as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so often when I'm speaking to HSC managers, for example, who want to make changes, they want to get rid of zero harm, for example. They want to move past BBS, but they're frightened to death often uh, of what the regulator might say. Sometimes they're frightened of what their own board is going to say. Um, for uh, I work with lots of mining companies here. They would dearly love to move past zero harm, but it's a global mining company and mm -hmm. they've had zero harm as their logo for you know, 30, 30 years, 20 years anyway. And the company doesn't want to change that. And so their, their hands are tied. But this thing about the regulator, I, I was reading um, Decker at the weekend, um, Just Culture. He was suggesting, and I think it's true to a degree, that we, we often believe we have to have this, 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 and this because the regulator wants it. And I would probably challenge that a little bit. I think we assume that a lot, but honestly, I reckon 70, 80% of the rules organizations put in place are not required by the regulator. We actually make those up all by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And again, this feeds into the whole safety clutter business. We, we get frightened, we have an incident, we think we need better protection, we change the policy, change the procedure or write a whole new set. We're really good at doing that. Mm -hmm. But what we're terrible at is, is actually getting rid of the old ones. Um, and again, why not? Because we're frightened if we throw the old ones away, that's the very one we might have needed if the regulator comes and investigates. So we end up with this huge mountain uh, of safety clutter. And again, um, you know, in our courses, not so much in the book, but in our courses, we talk about the fact that uh, humans by their very nature want the path of least resistance. We don't like to focus too much. We can't hold too much stuff in our conscious minds. What am I going to read that document that you need a forklift to carry around? Yeah. No, 
I'm just going to make shit up. Yeah, right. <laughs> probably, probably a good time to maybe open it up and ask the audience for, for their insights. Um, sure. Tanya, did you have something to say, if I correct? I mean, just when people were story sharing, I mean, I, I don't yeah. necessarily want to, you know, just add to a negative pile, but, you know, uh, this <laughs> a couple of years ago, like during during the this COVID era, my husband was involved in a in a construction project and um, and it was a multi partied affair there were all sorts of of different companies involved his just being one of them and it turned out that there was i the details escape me but there was i think an undersized fan or something or something like that that you know it didn't it nobody was killed nobody was hurt but you let that play out and something is going to overheat. And, you know, so uh, my husband brought it up that, you know, this is, this is a, this isn't great here. Uh, but then they pulled out the um, TSSA standard and showed, Hey, we are compliant with this. There's Hey, there's nothing wrong. And I, and my husband was like, oh, well, look, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, but like you let this run, like, you know, you, so then it became this massive fight on who was going to pay for what it was. It became a very follow the money, I think, is a major theme in that we don't yeah. tend to talk about yeah. in these things. Yeah. And um, I, in the meantime, had uh, been going on a lot of calls and there was one that the CSSE had set up with a TSSA standard writer and i learned how you can change the standard because the pe people who write the standards and the regulations and th they're they're just people they can get yeah. things wrong and, and they want the same things we do right yeah like you know they can get things wrong and and so i said oh my god this is a huge opportunity you know like if you could you know, uh, Mike, go and get your your boss and all of that, all those people around the table and get them to to weigh in on this thing. And he looked at me. What the Christ, you want me to be fired? Are you kidding me? Yeah. And I'm like, but but hun, like, look, we can make this we can make the thing better. Yeah. You know, we can actually change the standard because what's going to happen? The standard is not going to be changed. This same thing is going to be done somewhere else. Some mechanic is not going to raise it. We're going to find out in 17 years that some fire has, you know, erupted and things. And it's going to be related to this particular standard that you have the opportunity to change. And he and he just, you know, basically said, yeah. you know, you live in a dream world. I don't think you understand how the world really works. And I'm like, man, that's sad. <laughs> I think, Tanya, you've just absolutely nailed compliance to care right um and in fact what can block that um you know and, and yet regulators may well have their role but i have found generally speaking that uh regulators want the same things we do if, if there is a suggestion we can make um to regulate that they agree will improve things that they're they're open to it i, I believe that doesn't mean our company is uh, because of various costs or, or changing changes too hard or whatever it is 
but yeah, those are the sorts of things that block that journey from compliance to care. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So something that Hafitz and I are, are looking at is that the aviation safety world, and we are trying to look at the, as we call the blunt end of the safety sphere, where the regulators are and where the policies and all the acts and the standards are done, as opposed to the sharp end. Mm. So hopefully, Hafitz, you and I will get some sort of traction there. And I think you're right. Yeah. Um, regulators are trying to be proactive because I think they've realized yeah. some of them have painted themselves into a corner and they keep mm. on piling on the regulations without saying, we need to stop and just look yeah. at all of us in here and just throw some things out, you know, out of our toolkit yeah. and have a few that make sense. And if we can yep. get that conversation sort of going and helping them, I think we'd be all be better off. Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, um, I think we discussed this in our last discussion, Gary, uh, uh, with uh, Michael as well, right? You know, th this whole concept or this philosophy of safety, you know, as it's it's all it's it's mainly seen as something that's restrictive or prescriptive onto us. Right. And uh, instead, you know, try and make it something like uh, something that's enabling, you know, to enable, you know, systems to to function or systems to work. You know, you know, it's a, it's, it's, you know, this is concept that I heard at some point in time before. Right. You know, um, we need to make safety our friend and not our adversary kind of thing, you know. So, yeah. Right. Anybody else have some comments? Jim, I think Jim had his hand up there. Okay, Jim, just um, um, Jim, you got to. Um, Turn on your mic. Yeah, turn on your mic. There you go. Yeah, okay. you're there. Good. Well, first of all, Clive, it's nice to see you uh, hey, and hear you more or less in person. Uh, loved your book, by the way. Uh, but I guess my comment is, you know, the next generation of safety leadership. When's that going to start? We seem to really know. <laughs> A lot of the answers, and we have forever. You know, yeah. Deming told us in 1981 yeah. uh, that we need to drive fear out of the organization, but we really haven't done that. Uh, in my no. opinion, um, we are safety profession is perhaps the biggest obstacle. Uh, I, I tend to agree, Jim. And look, thank you for that, Jim. Look, and this is just my as a clinician, maybe I bring a slightly different lens. You know, we, we all bring our uh, uh, frames of reference to whatever we do, and I'll, I'll own that. I bring a clinical lens, a, a humanistic lens, a psychology lens. But for me, um, many, including the New View people, Decker, Conklin, um, so forth, they almost invariably talk about the importance of trust too, things like safety too. You can't do safety too if the workforce won't talk to you honestly. You cannot hope to actually roll out safety differently if the workforce, when you bring them in, won't tell you stuff. Um, while they acknowledge the importance of trust, very few people have actually directly faced it and said, this is actually what you need to focus on creating. It's, it's been done very, very little in my experience. And I thought it was about time. Now, um, when's it going to start, Jim? <laughs> Great question. I believe, uh, based on my experience, there are green shoots. I can tell from the amount of inquiries uh, we've had in the last 18 months, two years, that some organisations really want to do it. Um, 
in, well, not invariably, but frequently, they really want it, they'll make a start, but they will find a blockage somewhere, mm -hmm. whether it's the board, whether it's their perception of the regulator, um, whether it's just, you know, would they just want to retreat to the safety of BBS because change is too hard. Uh, there are green shoots, mate. I think that progress is actually being made. Perhaps it's also the new view is gaining some traction. Um, that can help too, although I've got my own challenges around the new view stuff at the moment, which I'm happy to share in a little while. But um, I don't want to be overly pessimistic about it because my, my own evidence is that um, not just are the inquiries increasing, but we're gaining more and more traction with it. So don't feel too disheartened at this stage. But yeah, look, we, we, this should have been a long time ago, but I don't think we've actually focused on trust as the key variable we should be focused on. I think we've made safety too hard. I think we've made it way too theoretical, I think. And, um, expensive. Me, and expensive. And let me just share this. Mm. I think um, maybe even a lot of the people on my screen right now, and myself included, um, theorists, commentators, academics, people who are on LinkedIn a lot, <laughs> I think to a degree we exist in a bit of a bubble. And we talk about this stuff. We talk about safety differently. Safety two, hops, resilience engineering. My God, there's so many of those things. Uh, I've got to tell you, when I'm out at a mine site or on a construction site, nobody knows what the hell those things are. The safety managers, want, he just wants to know what he can do to keep his team safer. I never talk about that stuff. Um, I just help him with practical suggestions on how he can start engaging his team um, again, if you will, if you want to use new view language, to see them as the solution, not the problem. Now, you could argue that to me almost doing safety differently stuff. I don't care what you call it. Um, let's take the complexity and the theories and the models out of it. I was having a good little, I was going to call it a discussion, but it's probably an argument uh, on LinkedIn. I was trying to stay up for this, right? And I'd stay awake. So I got on LinkedIn and I got in trouble. Uh, <laughs> because there was this huge article, Robert, Rob Long, Dr. Rob Long was just fleecing the new view people. And I said, for God's sake, can we just stop? Can we just stop haranguing that model and that model? That's good, that's bad. And can we just um, acknowledge, you know, they're just, let me share this with you just briefly. I'm, I'm, I have no idea what, how I'm doing for time here, but oh, this is an important one for me. Yeah, you know, we're, we're doing fine. You and I had some okay. questions, but that was just the theory, just guidelines. What the heck? Yeah, <laughs> throwing the plan out of the window. What, what the, the heck? <laughs> um, look, what, I, what I've tried to explain in that conversation was forget the bloody model because it's not about the model. Now, again, this is me bringing my clinical lens. I'll just go back in time a little bit. When I was a, a psych student, uh, looking at all the clinical stuff. I've got to share with you, when we're working with clients, um, there's this whole realm of different psychological models that we learn that we can use, right? There's anything from Freudian therapy, there's um, behavior therapy, it's still there, uh, cognitive therapy, there's um, humanistic th therapy, EMDR, there's just a whole range of them. And so it's funny because as you're learning these different models, different personalities tend to gra gravitate towards certain models. I was drawn, for example, to the, the more cognitive models than behavior. I was drawn to the humanistic models, but other people were drawn elsewhere. Now, a very wise lecturer one day, he said, right, what I want you to do is uh, as part of your next assignment, actually, is to spend the next week reading through the models. I want you to come back 
um, and explain to the rest of the class your favorite model and why that's your favorite model. And so we did that. And it was amazing to watch as people were sharing their favorite model. There were people shaking their heads. Saying, How can you think that? And then all this passion started coming as to why their model was the right model. And you should be ashamed of yourself for liking Freud and all this stuff was going on. Um, people got really attached to huh? And then the very sage lecturer again stood up and he said, stop. Let's talk about what doing, doing what works. Um, psychology, despite what many people think, is very much an evidence-based or research-based discipline. And he said, let's look at what works. That is, what predicts positive outcomes with clients? And he said, uh, the model, whatever model you're using, where do you reckon that sits? as a predictor of positive outcomes. And we're all thinking probably close to the top, especially my model. And he's gone, no, it's all the way down here. To the point of insignificance. What's right at the top? The therapeutic alliance. That is the relationship that you have with the client. And what is that about? That's about how much trust there is for that person to open up and speak with you it doesn't matter what model you use if you do not have that alliance it's not going to matter one jot whether you're doing safety differently or behavior based safety if you've got the therapeutic alliance so it's not therapeutic in this case but you know what i'm saying then largely anything that you bring in will be viewed as benevolent in nature and people are much more likely to engage with it. but don't tell me this model's better than that one now having said that there are some models, I believe, that tend to lend themselves better to trust than others. That's all. And that's the only reason I would advocate maybe one over the other. It's not about the model per se. It's about the outcome. It's about the fact that some create trust and others don't. So that's just my thought on models. Yeah. Tamara, you had something to say? I do, but um, Chris had something to say first. Did sure. Chris, Chris, did you want to come back on? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll chime back in here. Okay. What uh, Clive had followed up Jim with uh, was I was just going to piggyback on what I think it was Jim, the gentleman with the fish picture in the background. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was just going to follow up with the fact that uh, somebody must be getting it out there, Clive and Jim and the rest on the call, because somebody deemed me worthy to take on uh, the role of a safety culture coordinator on a large oil rig construction project in Newfoundland, Canada. And uh, I basically took on a role that was similar to a project that was uh, uh, also took place in Newfoundland. It was an Exxon oil rig construction project, billion dollar projects. And they hired a trade worker with no certification. They said, uh, okay, you, you speak the language, you've been on tools, you know how to engage people. Um, let's go out there and create some culture that we want to open up the opportunity for safety to happen and exist. And uh, it was, it was, an, it, it was a vote of confidence for me. Um, I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, the only piece that I thought I could bring to the project at the start was my knowledge of mental health and the, and the, and the need for a priority of that within right. every safety culture along with any peaceful systems. And so I did bring that and it, there's a whole other story that follows that. But um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to find your book at the time that I did because it, was, it did help to validate my offering that I was able to bring without my certification, which I'm currently working on. <laughs> so, uh, you Fantastic, know, Chris. my, my question, yep. My question, uh, and, uh, I appreciate the engagement I've been able to have with you club on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, 
you can expect more. I hope I don't harass you too much. But my question, as uh, with a lot of this offering, is what can we do to measure trust? I'm always, I'm currently at a gold mine in Northern yeah. Canada. My part-time job is with SNC Lavalin on a rail project in Ottawa. But um, we're in both settings. We're trying to measure all kinds of things, KPI-driven uh, efforts with a mix of relationship, strong relationship emphasis here in Northern Canada. But um, how can I help my team to promote efforts to measure trust? That's that's something yeah. I'm very keen on influencing my team with. Yeah, great question, Chris. And look, there are a number of ways. First up, there are legitimate, uh, reliable and valid trust surveys that you can actually get. Uh, I think they're, they're sort of, um, the tests come from academia, of course, but they're well-researched, well-validated. I'm trying to remember the name of the researcher. Off the top of my head, it was Meyer, Meyer et al. Uh, I can follow that up. Um, as well as trust, uh, as I wrote about in the book, you can measure psychological safety, which, and to me, and this is just my opinion, the differences between trust and psychological safety are way overblown. For me, psychological safety is little other than trust experienced at the level of the team. But you can measure team trust as well. But there's some very good, reliable and valid um, measures of psychological safety out there too. In fact, here's a suggestion that's uh, quite cheap. <laughs> um, and that is if you buy Amy Edmondson's book, or even if you don't, I can actually flick it to you anyway. It's in the public domain now, but there's a wonderful little seven item scale in her book that's um, quite a reliable and valid measure of psychological safety. Now, that's a little bit different to trust maybe, but really not a lot. That alone is a reasonable tool that you can use with your team quite quickly and easily just by presenting them with seven questions. But it depends how deep you want to go with that. You can do the trust as part of a wider climate survey. Uh, we use a, a company in the UK who I've used for 20 years now, um, Feedback Works. They, they're just better at it than I am. Um, they specialize in, in metrics. But there's quite a number of tools, Chris. So I'm happy to follow up with you on that. Yeah. Well, Chris, let me offer you carrying on from Clive right down to that personal level. So this is the stuff that I used to teach when I was doing the Seven Habits Highly Effective People. And it talked a bit about Gary, you cannot go up to another person and say, trust me, yeah. it won't work. What you got to do yeah. is show that you are a trusted person. So you've got to be honest, you got to have integrity, you've got to keep your commitments. And then over time, that other person will say, I trust you, Gary or Clive or Chris. You know, the, the analogy there or the metaphor we use was think about in an emotional bank account. So with each person, you have a bank account. Now, if you're doing well, you are depositing, you're making deposits, your bank account is growing. But if they do something like forget to do something that you promised, it's a withdrawal, right? And I had lots of fun doing this in my workshops, talking about the husband and wife relationship and how guys, we would do lots of little deposits. We would bring flowers, we'd say thank you. And then we would actually do something small like forget something. And you always find that the withdrawals are really, really huge and you almost get close to bankruptcy. So a very <laughs> good question that you can ask because it's all about relationships, correct? So we're talking one-to-one -one relationships here, Chris. You can actually have each person go say, there, where's my bank account with you? 
you know, am I close to being at the bankruptcy level? I do have a, have a lot. This becomes really important because you're going to get in those situations. And I've had those where on a Friday night, you're ready to close up shop because you're going to your son's high school basketball game and, and you're going to be there. Your boss comes running in the door and says, we've got this big opportunity. I need you to work on this tonight and finish it off. You're stuck in that dilemma. And the way that I learned and shared how to get out of that is you look at what's my bank account with my boss? What's my bank account with my son? And then you give those choices to the boss. And he goes, and in many cases, the bosses are, oh, you're right. Forget this. Go off and have good fun with your son. That's how you can use that as a tool as well. Sure. Sure. And again, just on your point there, Gara, and you're right, you, you can't make people trust you. People have free will. People choose to give it or not. And yet, for me, you could equally say the same, same thing there about, well, what that means is you can't make people mistrust you. That has to be given too. And as we discussed um, earlier, uh, for me, even that's, that sounds harder to take. You can't make people mistrust you. I reckon I could give that a pretty good go. Eh? I reckon it's quite straightforward to do. Uh, of course, what we can do is we, we influence that very strongly, but equally we can influence trust. My, my own way of leading is I don't even like to think in those terms because if I'm passive, in that. That is, if I think, well, you know, I can't make people trust me, so why bother? Um, so even though I know I can't actually force people or make people, if you're trying to force people to trust you, they're never going to trust you. Um, I still view it as my job as a leader to cre create trust amongst my team. I know I can't make them do it, but I don't want to be passive about it. I'm going to do, I see it as my number one role as a leader is to create trust in my team. And for the most part, I'm pretty good at it. Jim's got his finger up there, Jim. You weren't being rude there, were you, Jim? No, no, I, I, I don't <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, a lot in the safety profession, a lot of us have figured out that trust is important and care and showing care is important. I think the problem often is though, uh, many in safety think it's their job to build organizational trust and it's their job yeah. to show that the organization cares. And it's really not, it's management's no. job to do that. And we need to spend more time with management, convincing them that they need to get out from behind their desks, get out and have conversations with their people, build that trust and don't kill it. There's a lot of ways you can kill it. Uh, so we need to do a lot of coaching with management, but instead we, do. we spend most of our time dealing with the people, nothing wrong with that, yeah. but yeah. It's, it's a very incomplete us. Yeah. 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 And look, you're right, Jim, it can happen to in silos, right, where you have maybe trust overall in senior management, for example, is not that great. But like a, a, on a big mind site, for example, that may well be the case. That is frequently the case. But what I always encounter is this team here, just this one team, they have really high levels of trust within their team of their leader. So again, this is leader specific to a degree. And if you can get that one leader, so I, I'm never gonna wait, and I never recommend any supervisor, superintendent wait for the GM or the CEO to change because you might be waiting forever, right? I still believe we can do what we can do to influence trust on in our team. Um, and I, I believe, look, if, if more and more teams are doing that, well, 
the organizational starts to, to, to lift too. We can influence other teams maybe, but let's never wait for others to do it in my point of view. The other thing with trust, as I wrote in the book, and I wish more leaders would remember this, um, and Gary was talking about the bank account, right? Uh, the quote was, and I love this, this proverb actually, and that's trust arrives on foot, but leaves on horseback, huh? So yeah, it can take quite a while to build that bank account out, but man, you can drain it just like that. And again, just last week, uh, there's a GM who had been trying really hard. Right? He, he went through the course, he tried all this stuff. Um, now this is, um, and unfortunately, this is, this is kind of systemic. I'm not blaming this leader. The construction industry in Australia, the margins here, guys, are so thin. And what I know is many contractors, um, when the client is looking for contractors, one of the criteria they use is their LTI rate, right? They go on the lag indicators. Mm -hmm. And so what that means for these construction, especially contracting companies, is if their LTI rate creeps up, they know they're less and less likely to get asked on the next job. That is just sick stuff, right? Um, so what is that encouraging? That's literally incentivizing non-reporting. So this, this GM who's been doing his best, there was um, an injury and the decision was made to bring this guy back on light duties, right? Um, look, when that's done mutually, it can, it can benefit both parties. This was done purely on metrics. This was done purely so it did not count as an LTI. Now, of course, word soon gets around. Everybody heard about that stuff. But later that week, that GM is doing a state of the nation talk to the workforce. And his opening line was, I wish to remind you that our, you, you know, your safety is our highest priority. And you could hear that little groan coming from the crowd. Trust is gone. It's bolted. And it's probably not coming back. And yeah, we really need to be careful with this stuff. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask a question here. Um, how, what, what are your recommendations for uh, the C-suite level to be creating that trust in management? Because I, I've totally seen it on the floor. When the C-suite come, they come in a little group with their entourage in, in tow, and nobody is allowed to, to behave normal. It's like a, a theater show. It's disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. They should be ashamed of themselves, um, how the theater show goes on. And, and if, if a, a C-suite does try to talk to an employee, all of a sudden they're intercepted by a lower level management, right? Okay. And I even remember um, when I was working at Metro wanting to go and speak, we would say go up to corporate office, right? Even the language there being used. Um, and, and just me speaking about that, everybody's like, like, oh no, you can't do that. That's not allowed in the store. And I just, I went ahead. Right. And the repercussions were huge. You know, I never got promoted or anything because I, I took my idea up to um, John Zatila, the VP, who was very open to listening and hearing. Nothing came of the ideas, of course. Right. Which was unfortunate. Um, but even coming back into the store as a, a, a store level health and safety person, it was then reprimanded that I had gone and spoken to the VP, the senior VP, which was not his choice. 
right? It was not the VP's choice that that happened. So again, what can they be doing to nurture those open lines of discussion and communication? All right, so the short answer is a lot, but let me just talk about the C-suite, the, the board sometimes. Um, again, um, I tend to have a more benevolent view of human nature. And I don't, I don't like to blame even C-suite. I, I get accountability, I get responsibility. Uh, I think it came from my time in, cl in clinical work, working with the addictions. And what I learned treating people with an addiction, um, it's an old cliche, I guess, but they've really got to want to change, right? It's the old psychology joke. You know, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, only one, but the bulb's really got to want to change now. Right? All right, lame. Um, if, you, um, if you really want to get culture change through an organisation, um, you should never wait for this, but ideally, you've got to make the case for change with the C-suite. They must understand the case for change. And whenever I've got the opportunity, I just relish it. I rarely get more than two hours with the board, rarely, sometimes three or four. And I use all that time to just first up before I give them any skills or any suggestions to make the case for change, the research case. Uh, I don't talk about trust and psychological safety because it's nice. Um, again, if there's a stronger, more um, reliable predictor of safety performance and trust, please let me know what it is. We also know from projects like um, Project Aristotle and other research that psychological safety um, is the number one predictor of high-performing teams. This is not just about safety. This benefits the organisation in many ways. Now, the, the C-suite need the case for change. Otherwise, why would they? Boards are conservative by nature. They don't want huge change if they don't have to have it. So if you can put a strong case to them, um, then you've got a chance to actually demonstrate how to do this, what this actually looks like. Sorry, there's a finger going up there. Somebody else being rude to me. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting that uh, you you mentioned quite a bit a lot about trust, um, and else, as well as um, you know lead indicators and lag indicators, right? Um, I think Gary 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 um, Gary Gary can recall this as well um, on our previous discussions about uh, leading indicators and lagging indicators, right? And you know attitude is seen as a lead indicator and compliance is seen as a lag indicator. Right. So how, when, how would attitudes um, interact with trust to eventually produce compliance or, or, or for compliance to emerge? You get, All right, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand the question, mate. You might need to give me that. Don't forget, it's like 1.45 a.m. here. You might need to simplify that for me. <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, okay. How, how, I mean, how, how does trust, attitude, and uh, uh, compliance, uh, you know, interact between the, you know, among the three, right? All at okay. the same time, used to produce, um, you know, uh, an outcome, or you know. Yeah, I, I don't think trust operates in that way necessarily directly. Um, An attitude can cover a whole range of things. Attitude is a really big, big thing. Trust to me um, works sometimes indirectly. And the, the main thing about trust, why it's so important is that where you have tr trust, high trust, low fear, 
people feel absolutely free to report near misses, to stop the job, to um, admit mistakes. It's also about innovation in that they feel um, safe to share. You're never going to stop as far as I'm concerned. Um, slips, trips, falls, that's a human condition. We're, we're not perfect. If we can stop killing people, that would be awesome. And what, what we're going to rely on is that, again, it's almost it's that safety differently speak between, to me, uh, I'm, a, I'm a simple guy, you probably picked this up. I view safety essentially as consistently doing work well and reliably. That's it for me, doing work well and reliably. What's the best way to do that? Well, it's go to the people who do the work because they're effectively doing it all the time. They get the nuances that we don't get. We might write the policies and procedures in the office and then just mandate those to the workforce. We have no idea if that's gonna work out. Now, if you have no trust in the workforce, they won't even tell you that. You know, that, that whole notion of work as imagined versus work as done. Well, there's always a gap, right? If you've got no trust though, you're never gonna find out about the gap. They're not gonna tell you. If you go to them and say, so how's that new policy? Fine, boss, fine. You know, if you've got high trust and low fear, you find the gap immediately. This policy works fine 90% of the time, not when it's raining or whatever, you know what I mean? You'll pick that up really quickly. You'll make developments from that. You try doing that with no trust. And again, um, there's always a gap between work as imagined and work as done, which can be fine, by the way, it's not, but it can lead to when do we often find out about the gap if there's very low trust? We'll, we'll, we'll find out one day, yep. but it's not in a good way. Well, that's, that's the place to start with the current reality. Don't start with uh, some idealistic future way out there. Start with your current reality and go from there. We're in the last two minutes, so... Um, wow. Yes. It's, well, we're having a wonderful time. It's a great conversation. <laughs> Did you want to say any one word or one minute on safety differently, psychological safety, trust? Yeah, okay. Um, people might have noticed um, that I did include a chapter on safety differently. And I've had my conversation. Um, people often lump me into the new view stuff, right? Which I get because I talk about similar stuff. Um, I'm only an advocate of safety differently to a lesser extent, safety too. Um, hop is fine. But again, I'm only an advocate because they tend to be approaches that are more likely to build trust. That's it for me. That's, um, I don't care what model you use. I'm not, you know, I'm not a fan of models. I am a fan of creating that therapeutic alliance. And then frankly, it doesn't really matter what model you use. Right. But that's, um, safe, the reason I included the chapter on safety differently is because I do believe if it's done well and you do have trust, it's a great way to, to build momentum with that and psychological safety. That's the only thing. I don't want you to think I'm some safety differently devotee but um, it can be useful in that regard as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we could carry on for another half hour <laughs> with, with so yeah. many comments and maybe we'll have to bring you back a third time, Clive. Who knows, right? And uh, Shit, I better write another book, eh? Yeah, write another book. Yes, for sure. <laughs> so I want to kind of do my customer ending and just ask you, Clive, what are your three takeaways from today you would like to leave with the viewers? All right, and look, I've alluded to these already, but um, again, I just want to remind people, I don't talk about trust and psychological safety because they're nice things. I mean, they are, but the, the evidence is actually indisputable in terms of the benefits, not just for safety, but for um, 
for, for work in general. Second point, that trust can be influenced and it can be influenced very, very strongly. And I believe as a leader, that's my number one job. If I do that, if I influence trust in my team, everything else is just going to work better. Safety is certainly going to work better. Uh, I will say this too, and this is I've learned this the hard way, and that's try to stop thinking in terms of trying to change your organisational culture. <laughs> now, I know that might sound a little odd given I just wrote a book essentially about culture. What I've discovered is organisational cultures are too old, too tan intangible, too unwieldy, um, and you don't have one culture anyway. You've got lots and lots of cultures in the organisation. To me, the best way to change a culture is one leader, one team, one conversation at a time. And if you're doing that with your team, um, that's really you know, a, a great thing. You can influence other teams maybe, but that's probably the way to do it, I'd say. And yeah, finally, don't get hung up on the model. <laughs> Use whatever model you like. Don't get hung up on it. Just focus on building trust. Yeah, great, good. I see it, it's the top of the hour here and I notice some people are just coming into the waiting room. Real apologies. Uh -oh. We may have had a mix up with the PMT and the fact that in North America, we moved into daylight saving time. So instead of 4 p.m. it was a 3 p.m. start. But tomorrow I think um, you're gonna have this recorded and then we definitely will publish it. Just wanna say that for next month, it's, um, we're gonna take an Easter break so you can enjoy yourselves. But then we will be back in May with another great show. Mark, Wonderful. over to you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Clive, for joining us and giving us your time, especially at 1 a.m. Um, <laughs> on your Saturday. I hope it makes sense. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. this was amazing. And thank you, everybody, for taking the time out of your day and coming yeah, and joining absolutely. us because we wouldn't have any discussion if people didn't show up and thank you gary for your time for always hosting these and yeah, thanks, getting gary. fabulous people to come and talk thank you okay thanks all thank you. you and me bye thanks a lot everyone appreciate your time thank you gary thank you tomorrow thank you